as a uh, as the church of the Nazarene also um, entered a partnership with this organization. He gets us. And um, you'll start to see more of these videos. You probably have seen some if you've watched, especially during sporting events, they're showing them. And uh, they will continue to do that through this week. As part of our partnership, when somebody follows through on He Gets Us, um, they are questioning, they hey, wondering what's going on, they need some help with something. If they go to the website, if they pursue that, then our church is one of the churches that will pop up as a place where they know that we're a church that believes that He gets us. So um, I like what they're doing, and uh, we're, we're going to be a part of that. So I also want to emphasize a little bit about what Shannon talked about in the, uh, this coming weekend. A revival conference, we're calling it. We have typically had a revival. It's been in the spring, and we've done, um, I was going to say pretty traditional. Traditionally, they used to go two weeks. If you, some of you might remember that. Start on Sunday, and then go two weeks every night. Um, and then over time, it's been shortened. We have, since I've been here, done revivals starting Sunday, going through Wednesday night. And um, I was talking with Jeremiah, and he is friends with uh, Rob McCorkle, and they did teen camp this year. And uh, he said, you know, we would like to, instead of doing a full week, he said, we think we can get uh, better attendance if we do a, what we're doing this time, Friday night. It'll be Saturday morning at 10, so not super early. Saturday evening at 6, and then Sunday morning. Uh, the, it'll just be four sessions. And uh, one of the things that uh, I know about them at uh, camp, they had, well, listen, if, if we had time or if you want to talk to our youth pastor, Michael, or any of the teens that were at camp, um, there are some things that they can tell you. There was a, um, some healing under their teaching uh, that was brought by the Holy Spirit. They didn't do it. But some healing that we saw, that teens saw, that is significant. Um, a person got out of a wheelchair. I don't know if you guys knew that. A teen camp. Uh, was in a wheelchair, could not walk. And God healed them at teen camp this past year. A bunch of students around praying for each other. The Holy Spirit did it. They got out of that wheelchair and they walked. Another person was dealing with uh, depression and anxiety. And in an instant... God healed them of that depression and that anxiety. And by the end, they didn't believe it. It took them from the Monday all the way to the Friday when they testified. And I heard this testimony um, when they gave their testimony, Thursday, I guess, Thursday night. When they gave that testimony, um, they said, I felt like God told me that I was healed. I didn't believe it. Um, I wanted to believe it. But, you know, depression can have ups and downs. And they said through the week. I have just been completely released, and now here I stand on Thursday night with no remnants of that in me anymore. So um, some, some mighty things happened at camp, and I'm not saying that um, there's anything special necessarily about Rob and Jeremiah, but I do know where the Holy Spirit is, things can happen. And so I would invite you and your friends um, not to come for a fantastical adventure necessarily, but to come expecting to... Um, be a part of what the Holy Spirit wants to do uh, for those times. It will, for some of you, you're like, oh, my Saturday. It's, you know, it's a couple times on Saturday. You still have the time in between. Um, we're not trying to take away. Uh, we want to add to. So uh, we know that's what God wants as well. So here we go. On this day, I told him to, uh, speaking of not wanting to take away, I don't want to take away from your uh, Cowboys experience today. I know they, they play early, so I'm going to do my best 
to do whatever God asked me to do. Is that, is that fair? Um, I, as much as uh, I love watching the game as any of you guys, and we were joking about it before the service starts, I will never coordinate or step on uh, it, over the Holy Spirit. I will never coordinate something just so that we can watch a game because God and what he wants to do is so much more important. And we're going to talk about that, in fact. Uh, we've been talking about uh, this book in the Bible, the New Testament, this called Ephesians. Paul wrote it as a letter. Uh, you've probably heard the word epistle, which means letter, that uh, Paul wrote, and that's this book of Ephesians. He wrote it to the, to the churches in Ephesus, and we've been talking about that. Probably one of his most famous letters, one of the ones that uh, you've probably seen a lot, and a lot of quotes come from this letter when people uh, talk about it. And um, Really, this comes out of what we're trying to do as a church, what we want God to do here. We want to be a church committed to an inward journey of spiritual practices and an outward journey of missional engagement. And Ephesians really does a good job of, of doing that. This is how we're going to fulfill our church's why, which is to love like Jesus so lives are changed. And so... Uh, last week, we talked about the transforming effect that the Holy Spirit has in our lives. The Holy Spirit, He coordinates, um, uh, coordinates the, the wrong word. He catalyzes an inward change that results in an outward change. He changes us so that everything about us becomes different. Who we are, what we like to do, uh, the way we speak, all, all those things begin to change because of that inward Work. And so we're digging into the letter to the Ephesians, and um, Paul does a good job of, of doing two things. First, he talks about um, the, the work of the Holy Spirit in us. He talks about grace. He, he talks a, a lot of theology in the first part of the letter and what it means to be a follower of Jesus and how that happens. But then he follows that with our duties and our responsibilities to the body of Christ. So we accept Christ, and then he does such a change, that, that change is catalyzed in us, so that what we do, how we act, the way we live, how we serve, is different, right? So that's, that's what he does, and I think one of the reasons God has brought us to this book of Ephesians, that has brought me as the pastor of the church, is because we as a church have done such a good job of explaining to people the grace of God, who He is, that He loves you no matter what, that He gets us, that He wants to be with us. And so um, God, the gift of salvation is, is just a gift by the grace of God. And, and we've explained that a lot. It's available to everybody. But out of this need, this what our church has done, out of this is a need for people to be involved in service to the church. The ecclesia, the, which is the Greek word for a gathering of people with a, this is a condensed version, but a gathering of people with uh, similar ideas, ideology, um, with a similar purpose. So out of the transforming work of the Holy Spirit within us comes a need for people to be involved in the church. And Paul talks about that. We'll talk more about it later, but that's where the whole one body, many hands. We all have different responsibilities in the church, but we are one body working together. So um, I want to catch us up just briefly from uh, last week. We're going to be in Ephesians chapter 2 today. Uh, we we kind of went through Ephesians chapter 1 last week, but uh, also the notes for today's message are going to be in the church app. You can get that on there, and, and we'll have some scripture on the screen. But um, this is what he says in verse 20. Uh, he exerted Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. 
It's talking about Jesus. He seated him there far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but also in the age to come. In verse 22, God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church. So Paul's setting us up to understand that Jesus is far and above everything. Right? Everything is under Jesus. Jesus is almighty. And he was doing this to paint this picture for the people who were listening to him that Jesus was the most important thing. Because up until this point, you know, it had all been about uh, the religion, the, the rules about following God. And he was trying to help them understand that Jesus is God. God has set Jesus up. God has given Jesus this authority. And so it all is about Jesus. So he says, uh, he tells them all this. Um, God placed him, placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fulfills everything in every way. Now, when Paul wrote this, he didn't write chapters and verses, right? He just, he wrote it as a one letter. So the reason I wanted to catch us up, because we're dividing it up. We're starting in chapter 2 today. So um, after explaining how everything is under Jesus, he then begins to explain the depth of our depravity. He's drawing a contrast here. Everything is under Jesus. And that's where we pick up today. Chapter 2, verse 1. And uh, I have that on the screen. Yeah, it'll be here. It's also on your notes. As for you, this is small. Is this small for you guys? I have to fix that. I mean, I can read it because I'm close. So, all right. As for you, this is Paul talking. Talking about our depravity. You were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. Even when we were dead in transgressions, it is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. Now, I'm not preaching on this today, but are you catching that? Everything has been placed under Jesus. Then he says, it is by grace you have been saved. And verse 6, God raised us up with Christ and seated us Jesus, because we have been made children of God, of the King. Anyway, keep going. Verse 7, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this, not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So we're going to kind of step through this and start with uh, verses 1 through 3. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions. Paul paints a really bleak picture here. You were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live. And followed the, when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the, of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful natures. The first one I have is this. If you don't have anything nice to say, do you, did your parents ever say that to you? If you have nothing nice to say, <laughs> don't say anything at all. Man, I heard that all the time. Because I, I had one bratty little sister, and I would say, <laughs> bratty. Um, 
Dad, Sarah, if you don't have anything nice to say, don't say anything at all. Well, it's nice because I'm going to feel better, right? If you don't have anything nice to say. Um, Paul is setting us up here for a depth of depravity of what's going on. So his way, this way of thinking really flies in the face of current theology. He, he says that we are dead. The word dead here is necros. Necros. It means ineffective, dead, powerless. It is just the root word for necrotic tissue. It's dead. It's, it is nothing. If you don't have anything nice to say, like we really have nothing nice to say about the human condition outside of Jesus Christ. And that's what Paul's trying to help us understand. Very often people, we categorize people into a, well, they're, they're, they're nice people, right? They're still nice. But nice doesn't cut it in this case. We have a hard time believing that people at their core are rotten. That we at our core are rotten. We really struggle to think of humans as sinful and ornery to the core. It's hard for us because you don't want to look at your friend who doesn't know Jesus and think they are dead. So we make excuses. We don't think of them that way. And this idea is compounded in Texas where everybody is polite to your face. <laughs> right? You know, because sometimes you're polite to somebody's face and then behind their face, you're not so polite. In Texas, we're really nice. And so we think, hey, everybody's, they're nice people. It, this is, Christians don't practice behavior modification. That's not what we do. Some people practice behavior modification, and that does not make you a Christian. As a Christian, your behavior is modified because of the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. It's not because you decide, I'm going to modify my behavior. Maybe you do, but that doesn't make you right with Him. So as Christians, we have to understand that without Christ... We are dead, like he's talking about here. Paul describes the human condition, our condition, the condition of the real you, the spiritual being that inhabits your physical body. We connect our spiritual being and our body because we live in it, right? But our spiritual being just inhabits this physical body. This is not who I am. It's hard to separate those two. If you've not given yourself to Jesus, then you are dead. The same as every person who has ever been born. If you want to read about it, go to John chapter 3. He says, Jesus tell, teaches that we must be born again. He even teaches that we need a spiritual rebirth. Unless you are born again, he says, you cannot inherit the kingdom of God. I think the reason people reject this teaching is not because they reject Jesus, but because they're rejecting the idea that they are spiritually dead. No one wants to be wrong, right? No one wants to be in trouble. No one wants to be dead. When you get caught in something, your first thing is figuring out an excuse about why it's not your fault. It's not my fault. Why didn't you do good on that test you took? It's not my fault. The teacher didn't teach it right. I didn't, it wasn't in the textbook right. The test was graded wrong. 
You know what I mean? Like we go through all the excuses. I'm working on, uh, it's silly me at this stage of life, went back to school, I'm working on my doctorate. And I wrote a paper just last semester and I didn't get a very good grade on it. And I was like, well, that teacher, this is so subjective. She can just write whatever she wants in this paper. And I can't believe I should have got a great grade on this paper because I thought it was a great paper. And I went through all the excuses before I finally called her up and was like, hey, what gives? <laughs> what is not good about this paper? And she talked me through it and I was like, oh, okay, <laughs> you're right. So the next papers I modified, I changed because I had gotten what she was after. The thing is, is we just innately don't want to be wrong. I, we're not rejecting Jesus per se, but by rejecting the truth, we are rejecting Jesus. So if you don't hear anything else I say today, if you're here live or if you're listening to the podcast later, I, I want you to remember this. You must be born again. You have to turn from your sins. Otherwise, you will be just a dead person walking. That's the truth and the core of what it means. Because if we get into the next part, he says we are subject to God's wrath, right? We are subject to God's wrath. That's hard to hear. If you're following the world, if you are subject to the ways of the world, if you are rejecting Jesus as the authority in your life, then you, just as we read, are deserving of God's wrath. This is a real downer of a scripture, isn't it? <laughs> we want to hear all the, woo, this is good, and things are great, and life is awesome. Let's talk about God's wrath just a little bit. And we're going to turn the corner, I promise. So just hang with me for a minute. Because it's not all doom and gloom or we wouldn't be here today. About to celebrate Jesus Christ being risen from the, raised from the dead with communion later. But we have to understand what it is we're turning from. So what is God's wrath? I, there's two kinds of God's wrath. There's direct and indirect. Direct is the thing that we're probably most familiar with. Things like the flood like Sodom and Gomorrah, fire and brimstone, burning it, like that's a very direct form of God's wrath, judging sin and rebellion. Then there's indirect wrath. And that might be described as God removing his presence and his blessing over your life. Read Ezekiel, not right now, but read Ezekiel 10. It'll break your heart because God removes his presence from the people. This is so sad. He removes his presence. Read Romans chapter 1 and God talks about what it looks like in society when he removes his presence and people are given over to their own depravity following every lust of their heart's desires. If you read it, you might feel like it somewhat applies to us today. There's other examples I'm not going to dig into right now, but God's indirect wrath is meant to save us from his direct wrath. He, he is trying to help us, to teach us, to move us away from that. He doesn't want to pour his wrath out on sin, but sin deserves his wrath. And when we live in sin, we become objects of that wrath. 
Like I said, it's not bright and cheery so far, but verse 4 changes everything. But God. But God. Because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy. God's grace. If you've been around me for any length of time, you know that I love the grace of God. It is my discovery of the grace of God in my life that completely changed everything, that turned me into somebody way more radical than I was before I understood his grace. A proper theological definition is unmerited love and favor of God. We don't deserve it, but he pours it out on us. You did nothing to earn forgiveness. You did nothing to earn blessing. You did nothing to earn the presence of God in your life, yet he gives it anyway. He's amazing. See, we were totally depraved. We were going to die spiritually. We were left with no hope. We were objects of God's wrath, but God, who is rich in mercy, poured his grace out on us. The crux of it is you can do nothing to make yourself right. You can do nothing to make yourself right. In fact, Scripture says that your righteousness, your rightness, your attempt to make yourself right is as filthy rags, worthless, because our sin has tainted that righteous act. Totally depraved, without hope, no righteousness, but God, who is rich in mercy, poured his grace out. Isaiah 64, all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. We all shrivel up like a leaf, and like the wind, our sins sweep us away. Here's what we know, starting in verse 5. This is what we know, that God made us alive in Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved and God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus in other words Jesus paid it all all to him I owe Remember that song? Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. Jesus, praise God, paid it all. Christ paid the penalty for our sin. Remember a couple of weeks ago we talked about there is a punishment for sin and we can either choose to pay it ourselves or we can let Jesus pay it for us. This isn't like fighting over a check with your friend at the restaurant. This is a please let Jesus pay this for you. Please allow him to pay this. The soul that is in sin and doesn't allow Jesus to pay must die. That is the cost. Why is it so hard for us to consider the cost? <laughs> And allow him to pay it. We are steeped in sin. With righteousness that is as filthy rags. Destined for an eternity in hell. 
but God. That's the good news. Then the last part, verses 8 through 10. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Listen, God wants you. He isn't impressed with brick structures. He isn't impressed by any amount of rightness you can muster. He's waiting on you. He wants your heart. He wants your mind. He wants your soul. The God of the universe. And I like to say this, and it's probably a little hyperbole. Psalm 33 tells us, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and all their host by the breath of his mouth. The God who created the stars by the breath of his mouth wants you. He wants to dwell in your heart. And we talked about last week the word for heart, cardia, which means inner self, inside, in your mind. God wants to dwell where decisions are made. Isn't that interesting? We have this idea that my heart is pumping blood and God wants to live, Jesus wants to live there. What he wants is he wants to be involved in the decisions that you make in your life. He wants to dwell there. Why would we think that God wants a perfect structure to come into? He doesn't. He wants you. He wants you even when you're dead in your sin. He wants you even when you can do nothing to make yourself right. He wants you even when you're just a pile of dead bones. Remember in Ezekiel chapter 10 where he removed his presence? Follow through to Ezekiel 37. The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out by the Spirit of the Lord. This is Ezekiel giving his vision about God wanting to restore his place with the people, bringing them back to life. Out of the Spirit of the Lord, he set me in the middle of a valley. It was full of bones. He led me back and forth among them, and, and I saw a great many bones on the floor of the valley, bones that were very dry. He asked me, Son of man, can these bones live? I said, O oh, sovereign Lord, only you know. Then he said to me, prophesy to these bones and say to them, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the, the sovereign Lord says to these bones. I will make breath enter you and you will come to life. I will attach tendons to you and make flesh come upon you and cover you with skin and I will put breath in you and you will come to life. Then you will know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied. As I was commanded, and as I was prophesying, there was a noise, a rattling sound, and the bones came together, bone to bone. I looked, and tendons and flesh appeared on them, and skin covered them, but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath. Prophesy, son of man, and say to it, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe into these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded. And breath entered them. They came to life and stood on their feet, a vast army. Here's where we are today. God is calling. Can you hear him? God is calling. 
Will you join him on this great adventure of life? Will you choose him even though you have no right to? Even though your rightness, your righteousness is as filthy rags. Listen, we are a generation. God, that we are a generation that is being raised up for this time. God has placed all of you today in this church at this time for this reason. And he is saying, I am breathing life into you. You who were otherwise dead, by the grace of God, who is rich in mercy, wants to raise you to life. Listen, our church, we love like Jesus, so lives are changed. We love people whose lives are messed up, so they can join this church as well. We are all invited because nobody is better than the other. He has something for each of us. No one's righteousness matters because we have all been made one under God's grace. So I don't know if that resonates with you like it did with me. We were dead. He is breathing, Ezekiel, breathing life back into us. Will you allow him to do that. I'm going to invite the band up here in a moment. We're going to uh, take communion. And if you're helping with that, I'm going to ask you to get to your place too. I just want you to know Jesus wants to do something special in your life. By the grace of God, he wants to move in you. He's put us all together. And you know, as a pile of dry bones, some of us may be a hand, some of us may be a feet, some of us a foot, some of us may be a rib. I don't know what part God is calling you to, but he is bringing us alive. This is a generation that he has called to this place for this time to do his work, to invite people in so they can experience the life that, that we know is available. So this morning as we prepare to take communion before you take it, would you just pray about that today? Maybe you're here today and you haven't received this gift of God's grace. Will you do that today? Come pray at the altar. Spend a little time. Kneel at your chair if you want. Receive the gift that he has for you. All you have to do is ask. Ask.